Brian Smith here, and welcome to the Dream Path Podcast, where I try to get inside the heads of talented creatives from all over the world. My goal is to demystify and humanize the creative process and make it accessible to everyone. Now let's jump in. Jason Moore, welcome back to the Duocast, my friend. Brian, it's been a while. I'm glad to be here. It's been too long. Two episodes is too long to go. I know. I miss it. You know, I I look forward to the weekly or bi-weekly conversations that we like to have together. So we're here to recap two episodes, the Ken Kinnear interview and also Zach Ford. Right on. What did you think of that talk with Ken Kinnear? Well, it uh, it was a long interview, uh, but I think it was well worth it in my opinion. Ken is a storyteller. And I really enjoyed, you know, hearing about his journey in the music business and, you know, like his connections to Bachman Turner Overdrive and Heart, which are two of my favorite bands of all time, by the way. Uh, Plus, he talks in great detail about how he got the Gorge Amphitheater off the ground and running and with artists like Bob Dylan. And, you know, now we have so much history with that venue, which has become uh, legendary with so many well-known bands, artists, and all of these festivals that happen there. And not only that, I really enjoyed hearing the stories about your dad. Ah. You know, he's also part of the history and part of Ken's story. Yeah, that was a very special interview for me and uh, kind of a selfish one. It was really focused on Ken's uh, relationship with my dad, my connection to Ken, the tickets that Ken would give me and my friends to get into the Gorge concerts when I was a teenager and in my 20s. Mm-hmm. And a lot of those stories kind of centered around those topics. Right. But I think there's enough broad interest in who Ken is and this venue, especially since the documentary Enormous The Gorge Story came out on VOD, mm-hmm. which features Ken Kinnear and Mike McCready from Pearl Jam and mm-hmm. Dave Matthews. Right. There's enough broad interest in Ken that I think this is going to be a really popular episode that's going to resonate with a lot of folks. Yeah. One thing I appreciate about Ken is uh, he's a perfectionist. Yeah. And uh, he also has a very careful approach to promotion of the episode and also his own work, which he has a book coming out in March. He has a podcast that's launching. And that is why we had to delay the launch of his episode until now. And we talked to him late last year, but we couldn't launch it when we wanted to. That's right. But I'm glad we did. I'm glad we waited on his timeline and put it out when he was ready. And uh, I think it's a great way to start off the year to have such a great, rich conversation about rock history in the Pacific Northwest. And Ken is a big part of that. Mm -hmm. I mean, just his work as the manager of Heart for more than a decade could be the subject of an entire podcast episode. But we covered that. We covered his relationship with my dad and the adventures they had and an infamous flight that they took over the Bermuda Triangle that kind of served as the inspiration for one of the scenes in Almost Famous, written by Cameron Crowe. Right. I could go on and on. There's just so many cool stories that are part of that interview. And uh, it was great to reconnect with Ken because he's a part of my dad's history. And my dad passed away at a very young age. Right. There's so much to unpack with the history that Ken has with my dad and with Hart and with the Gorge Amphitheater and all those bands. I really am looking forward to hearing his own podcast, 
which I think is going to be called An Ass for Every Seat. Nice. Kind of the same vibe as this book, An Ass for Every Seat. Once that book launches, I'll give a shout out on the podcast to the book and point people to uh, where they can buy it. That's awesome. You know, yeah, I I thought it was very cool the very beginning of the podcast when he talked about, actually, it was off, off mic. He talked about Bachman-Turner Overdrive and getting them basically into the States, getting them on the radio. And uh, it's funny because my parents had a Bachman-Turner Overdrive album, uh, the one with Taking Care of Business on it. Right. Mm-hmm. And when you look at the back on the credits, it's Kinnear Management. Ken Kinnear Management is listed on there as their management for that particular record. So That's awesome. I just thought that's really fun. That's really cool that that's just part of sort of American music history. He is uh, actually planning to interview Mike McCready from Pearl Jam pretty soon here. I just talked to Ken yesterday oh. about reaching out to a famous member of Pearl Jam. You might have heard of him. His name is Mr. Edward Vetter. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Have you ever heard of that guy? <laughs> of course. Kind of a washed up yeah. nobody. Like never. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Some people call him Eddie. But um, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I'm trying to track down Eddie and Ken, of course, um, you know, is is friends with Kelly Curtis, who used to manage Pearl Jam. So I'm using my connections to try to track him down for a friend whose name I won't mention. You know who I'm talking about. But there's a documentary being put together, being shot by someone that uh, you and I both know who is trying to interview Eddie Vedder. So I'm trying to be the intermediary for that. And that's why I talked to Ken Kinnear recently. But Ken's always a fun guy to talk to and a good person to know and a good man, a good human. And I'm really glad that he took the time to sit down with us and share all of those stories, especially about my dad. I think it was a great interview. So let's talk about Zach Ford. That's the most recent interview that launched. What'd you think of that chat? Well, I, what I liked about the interview with Zach, uh, again, another great story of a screenwriter uh, trying to get his work made into film. But the way he went about it is where I find it most interesting. You know, he, I know it's crazy. Yeah. He, I mean, what did he do? He started up like a fake company with like a fake agent or a manager and started creating these screenplays under an alias or a pen name mm-hmm. and, and basically hacked his way into the movie business, you know? And some people would say that's kind of shady or it's kind of fake or, you know, it's, <laughs> you know trickery some sort. What, lying to people <laughs> to sell a screenplay? Right. No, that's not what he was doing. It, it, no. It's it's a lot more innocuous than that. You're right. But yeah, I, I agree. I mean, his story is so intriguing. He starts off as basically this working class guy who goes to New York University's Tisch School of Arts and sells a screenplay right out of film school. Mm-hmm. And it's called Scar. It's the first stereoscopic 3D horror film. Right. It was originally called Scribbleface, but he sells this screenplay and it gets made into a movie, gets 0% on Rotten Tomatoes. (laughs) And that is a feat in and of itself. Right. I mean, to make a movie so bad that not one, you can't even get 1% of the audience to say they're glad they watched the film. (laughs) But it becomes, ironically, number one in Russia and also does really well in Finland. Nice. But the damage is done. And so what does he do to try to be taken seriously in Hollywood? Well, he has to hack into Hollywood because the last film is the last thing that you're remembered for in Hollywood. And that's right. He didn't want to be remembered for Scar 3D. So he starts his own agency. It's a fake agency. Mm -hmm. He becomes his own fake manager. 
<laughs> and uh, starts writing screenplays under pen names and getting those reviewed by big time directors. Uh, Tony Kay, who directed American History X with Edward Norton, okay. is someone who looked at his work and was attached to one of his pen name screenplays for a while. But anyway, I, I put in the show notes a link to an article that he wrote for Script Magazine, which kind of details this journey that he went on to hack into Hollywood. But I really enjoyed talking to him. It's a very short interview. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons it was so short is that at the time of the interview, I had not been able to see the film because the filmmakers had it under lock and key. They had sold it to a distribution company that would not let me see it in advance of Sundance. Mm. And this interview was scheduled a couple days before Sundance started. So I talked to him about the film without having seen the film. And then, of course, when Sundance started, it's one of the shows that I booked with my press package. And it's a great movie. It's called Watcher. Mm -hmm. And I really think he redeemed himself with this film. It's a solid thriller. Mm -hmm. It's a nice genre piece. It's very well acted. And it did really well at Sundance. And it got picked up by IFC Films. Well, I think the guy's a genius. I mean, what a way to think about it and a way to approach it. And it just seems like he's probably one of the hardest working screenwriters in the industry. He's certainly one of the hardest working screenwriters and most creative in terms of how to work around impediments mm -hmm. professionally Yep. out of anyone that I've interviewed on the show. And I've interviewed quite a few screenwriters. Mm -hmm. What was really cool about Sundance, Jason, is that with my press package this year, I was able to get tickets to 25 different films. Wow. But because of time constraints, I was only able to watch 10 within a week. And 10 is a lot. It is. Uh, 10 is, uh, it's like basically 20 hours of your life <laughs> dedicated to watching these indie films. Right. And it was fun. I watched a movie called When You Finish Saving the World, mm. another one called Emergency, another one called Fresh which was really shocking and uh, kind of revolting at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> but but a, an interesting storyline. I, I don't want to give too much away, but all of these films that I'm mentioning, I'm sure are going to be picked up and distributed. You're going to see them on Netflix and Apple TV and Amazon. Mm -hmm. And that's just the way Sundance is these days. It seems to be kind of a, a repository for films that are already sold to some degree, or very close to being sold. And uh, certainly, by the time Sundance is done, pretty much all of these uh, buzzworthy films get picked up, and you'll see them within the next six months to a year. Fresh is a, a movie about a guy who is not what he seems, and he dates women and ends up kidnapping them and then selling their flesh Oof. on the black market Whoa. And uh, while they're still alive. So it's pretty gruesome. Wow. Yeah. Not a real uplifting film, <laughs> but that's that seemed to be a theme at Sundance this year, which was really hard to watch, kind of shocking films. There's another one I saw called Speak No Evil, okay. which might be the most shocking, horrific horror movie I have ever seen in my life. I mean, it, wow. it turned my stomach and I got through it, but barely. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't even know what to, to say beyond that, but it's called Speak No Evil. I'm sure it'll make it to streaming platforms, probably not to theaters, but certainly to streaming platforms in the next year or so. Another one I saw was Sharp Stick, written and directed by Lena Dunham. Hmm. That's an interesting storyline. It's a story about a nanny who has a crush on the dad, I guess, uh, in this family, mm -hmm. and a relationship starts. 
and it goes in a really crazy direction. And I'm not going to say anything more about it because I don't want to spoil it. It's a pretty good film. Another one called Resurrection with Rebecca Hall. And you may remember my chat with Rebecca Hall on the red carpet yes. a while back at the last Sundance that was live. We did not interview her for the podcast, so to speak, but she's on our YouTube channel and a lovely actress and fantastic actress in these types of movies. She tends to be cast in kind of noirish mystery thriller types of films, and she's great. Another one I saw, which is one of the top movies, I think, at the festival is called Duel. Hmm. And Duel is a D-U-A-L, and that's a film about clones. And there's a, a young woman who is diagnosed with a terminal illness, and there is a clone service where you can clone yourself and make it easier on your family members if you know you're dying. Oh, wow. So she clones herself to make it easier on her mother and her boyfriend and then finds out that she's not going to die. Oh, no. So she has this clone, and the only way that society allows you to deal with a clone is because you can't have two individuals walking around with the same identity. That's right. They have to battle to the death. Oh, wow. And so you have one year to prepare for this battle, this epic battle to the death. And Aaron Paul from Breaking Bad trains the protagonist of the film to battle her own clone. And it's really fucking cool. It's a minimalist film. There's, they, it was shot, I think, in like Finland or Sweden or something like that. There isn't a lot of like pyrotechnics or stunts or things like that, probably due to COVID restrictions and also budget issues. Um, but that was a great film. And I saw a, another one called God's Country. And finally, another really disturbing film, <laughs> uh, not a horror film, but extremely disturbing called Palm Trees and Power Lines. Interesting. Those are the 10 films I saw at Sundance. And I don't know how many total films there were. But I'm not going to summarize all 10 that I saw, but I had a really good time. I feel like it's a privilege to be able to take part in the festival in this way where I'm given a press package and I can have my pick of a lot of really amazing films and also some films that aren't so amazing or maybe need some work mm -hmm. or maybe won't make it to distribution and won't make it to VOD. Right. That's the kind of intrigue that these film festivals offer, which is what's going to happen to these movies? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I enjoy about it is you just don't know where they're going to go, but you do know that it's super exciting for the filmmakers to get into Sundance. And so I just enjoy watching these Q&As and watching these folks on social media get so excited about having their films make it into Sundance and then seeing where they go from there. I'm really intrigued. I, would, I, would, I want to see the one you were just talking about, about having to kill your clone. What was that one? Duel. Yeah. Duel. Duel. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> that, I mean, that one's sold. That one's sold. So you're going to see that in theaters and VOD probably within six months, maybe a year. Just the premise of it, I can't imagine having to do that. Basically, you're killing yourself or you're getting killed by yourself. Mm -hmm. I can imagine myself killing your clone, though. Your clone. Oh, that's fine. Well, I would actually take pleasure in it. <laughs> you know, I might actually take pleasure in that. <laughs> I don't know if I could deal with another me. Yeah, I don't know that the world could. Watching some guy that looks just like me grabbing my wife's ass. <laughs> it's not going to work. <laughs> yeah, well, that was fun. I'm looking forward to seeing what uh, South by Southwest has to offer 
and also Cannes, Cannes Film Festival this year. Nice. So Jason, have you been paying attention to the news about Joe Rogan and Spotify lately? Oh yeah. Yes, I have. What are your thoughts? Uh, well, first of all, okay, we have our podcast up on Spotify. You know, we promote it on our website. We promote it in our newsletter. We have it in our social media images that we use on YouTube, etc. But we don't make any money at all on Spotify. It's just another streaming platform for us. And having said that, I fully support Neil Young and anyone else who is making the decision to remove their content from Spotify. You know, this whole thing started because of a conflict and a problem a lot of people have with Joe Rogan. And as you know, or may not know, Spotify signed a $100 million deal with Joe Rogan in 2020, and they now own the exclusive rights to the Joe Rogan Experience podcast. So right, right. Joe, in the last couple of months, stated that he had gotten COVID, but instead of getting vaccinated and promoting science and vaccines against COVID, he took it upon himself to do his own research and promote the use of ivermectin, which is a horse dewormer. It's not at all helpful for COVID. So he's basically spreading misinformation on his podcast. And um, Neil Young, who is one of the artists that has his library on Spotify, you know, took a stand and basically said, look, it's either me or Joe. And Spotify decided to remove Neil Young and keep Joe Rogan for obvious reasons. So, mm -hmm. you know, in my opinion, fuck Spotify for making the decision and fuck Joe Rogan. He's just another asshole out there sending harmful and dangerous information to the masses. And actually, I hope more artists pull their content from Spotify. I wish they all would because they're not making that much money anyway. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that. Where I stand on this, Jason, is that when Spotify signed Joe Rogan to that $100 million contract, mm -hmm. they knew at the time that Joe had already had on his show a guy by the name of Alex Jones and was friends with Alex Jones. That's right. And yep. to give somebody like Alex Jones a platform mm. is a morally despicable thing to do, in my opinion, mm -hmm. because oh, yeah. Alex hurt a lot of people and specifically the Sandy Hook parents and victims. Yep. Uh, because Alex Jones, if you don't know who he is by now, went on his platforms, his podcast and YouTube, and espoused this theory that the Sandy Hook children did not die and were in fact crisis actors mm -hmm. and that the shooting never occurred. And so you have all of these parents who lost children in this shooting and families who lost teachers in this shooting. And they are being re-traumatized because of this fucking bullshit conspiracy theory that's just made out of whole cloth mm -hmm. for the sole purpose of making money. That's right. And I find it morally reprehensible that Alex would say those things, but he's a fucking nut job. He's crazy. Yep. Or he's not crazy and he's just evil. <laughs> and he's, you know, saying these things to make money. Yep. But Joe Rogan knows better. You know, Joe is a smart guy. I mean, he's not a rocket scientist. I'll give you that. Mm -hmm. But he's a smart enough dude to know what's real and what isn't, to know what's true and what's false. Mm -hmm. And to give that guy a platform, I don't care how much you debate him, how much you say he's full of shit on the air, to even give him a platform. That's what Spotify knew about Joe Rogan going into this. That's right. And then Joe puts on the anti-vaccine guests who have no scientific basis for anything that they're saying mm -hmm. and really creates a lot of confusion and spreads misinformation that hurts people and kills people. Mm -hmm. So I am totally fine 
with free speech and you know i don't want the government getting involved and censoring free speech even speech i don't agree with i'm fine with that but i also think that corporations who are not bound by the first amendment they're not government entities mm-hmm. have a responsibility to put out information that is true and accurate absolutely and what's going on with joe rogan and I've listened to Joe Rogan. So a lot of his followers will say, you have never even listened to Joe Rogan. If you would listen to him, you'd know. Well, I've listened to him before. Mm-hmm. And I've thought that this guy was full of shit from the beginning. Mm-hmm. You know, he would sit there for four hours talking to guests, smoking pot, nothing wrong with smoking pot, but it's, it's a rambling, nonsensical narrative that he spins with these guests that I've never connected to. It's never resonated with me. And so I stopped listening, especially after putting Alex Jones on. Mm. Whatever credibility Joe Rogan had was gone after he put on Alex Jones and defended it, by the way, too, Yeah, and still defends it to this day. So, you know, I'm with you on Joe Rogan, but at the same time, you know, our podcast is on Spotify. Maybe we should take it off. Maybe we should unclick that button for the feed and just, you know, stand in solidarity even though we don't make any money off of it and Spotify doesn't make any money off of us nope. for it, but maybe we should consider doing that. Yeah. I, I don't think it would hurt us in any way. And it certainly would be fine to kind of distance ourselves from that kind of bullshit. So, you know, somebody like Joe Rogan, who's making them a lot of money. Um, I think I read somewhere that Spotify makes about $9.7 billion a year in yearly revenue. And just last week took a 20% hit in their stocks. So, you know, that's a pretty significant chunk of money. I mean, if you're going to round it up to like 10 billion, that's $2 billion loss in two weeks. Right. So yeah, I think if more people pull their shit from Spotify and a lot of artists pull their music from it, it's going to make a huge dent in Spotify's bottom line. Maybe that needs to happen. Another thing to consider is that Spotify has mistreated artists and exploited them financially for years. Absolutely. Yep. They're one of the lowest paying streaming platforms for artists. Yep. So maybe this is a wake up call where artists need to take a stand and basically go on strike to have a more fair system for reimbursement and compensation for their work. Right. So this is bigger than Joe Rogan, I'm sure. And uh, I think it's a good conversation to have. And, you know, and also to be fair, Apple Corp, which puts out podcasts, Mm -hmm. I mean, they put out a lot of podcasts that are filled with misinformation too. Mm -hmm. They just don't pay the artist $100 million to have an exclusive contract for any particular podcast. Um, But, you know, YouTube for a long time Mm -hmm. had a real problem with misinformation and they still do. I mean, Joe Rogan's still on YouTube. Mm -hmm. Uh, YouTube is making a ton of money, I'm sure, off of ads that are running on Joe Rogan's videos. So it's not just about Spotify. When I say let's be fair to Spotify, what I mean by that is there's a lot of responsibility and accountability to go around. And it's not just about Spotify. And it's not just about corporations. It's about us Mm -hmm. as individuals. You know, we have choices. And I have the Spotify app on my phone. I have a lot of apps on my phone, like Facebook, you know, one of the most evil corporations in the world. (laughs) Talk about diabolical like supervillains, you've got Mark Zuckerberg right up there in the top three, probably. Oh, yeah. 
And yet I still am on Facebook. I still have the app. I still go on there and post and comment. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, we, we are all responsible for where we're at as a society and we put up with stuff we shouldn't put up with. And so, you know, I think it's a good conversation to have. I totally agree with you, man. So Jason, we have an interview coming up. It's already in the can. And it's my understanding you are currently in the process of editing that episode. Mm-hmm. That is my chat with Sunil Prakash. Yep. And uh, I really enjoyed that chat. Sunil is a movie producer. He's an indie film producer, but he also does big budget films. And he was the producer who developed from scratch the movie Salt with Angelina Jolie. Mm-hmm. He is also working on a sequel to Salt. He developed from scratch. When I say scratch, I mean he gets the script and he develops the script with the screenwriter and then takes it all the way through filming and production and distribution of the film. He worked on a film called Enchanted with Amy Adams. Oh, yeah. And is currently putting out a sequel to that film called Disenchanted, which they shot in Ireland during the pandemic. Hmm. And he has a new movie out called The Last Survivors with Drew Van Acker, Mm -hmm. Alicia Silverstone, and Stephen Moyer. Oh, wow. You may remember Stephen from True Blood. Yeah. He played Bill Compton in True Blood. Right. And he dated Sookie, of course. And I always appreciated the way he said (laughs) Sookie. But when you watch this film, Last Survivors, you have no idea that you're watching Stephen Moyer as one of the main characters. He's kind of a chameleon type of actor. Mm-hmm. And I didn't even know it was him until after I watched the film and I was looking through IMDb preparing for the interview. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's Bill. Mm-hmm. Bill from True Blood. That's right. And Drew Van Acker is the lead character, the lead protagonist. And uh, he's kind of a chameleon too. He looks like Brad Pitt, but he's more of a character actor. He's not so much of a, a movie star, although he has that movie star quality. Mm-hmm. And of course, Alicia Silverstone from Clueless and many other films, and uh, she's a great actress. Oh, yeah. It's kind of a post-apocalyptic film, but not. Mm. And when you watch it, you'll see why. But that was released on Friday, I believe, mm-hmm. on all streaming platforms, and I think it had a theatrical run as well. And um hope my audience uh, enjoys that interview with Sunil. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing that. I haven't seen Alicia Silverstone in quite a while. Yeah, she's been around. I I follow her on social media, and she has a TikTok channel that's pretty popular. Mm. But I looked at her IMDb, and she's been acting consistently since Clueless. She's doing mm. you know television work, and she's doing indie films, and she's still really good and fun to watch on screen. Yeah, I really like her. Well, Jason, it's always fun. Looking forward to our next recap. All right, you have a good weekend, Brian. You too, brother. Hey. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If so, I have a favor to ask. Can you go to wherever you listen to podcasts and leave me a review? Your feedback is what keeps this podcast going. You can also check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook with the handle at DreamPathPod. And as always, go find your dream path. 